your Bibles this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn. Bye, Maddie. Hey, Maddie. Bye. Bye, Maddie. She got her eye on an animal cracker. She didn't care about Papa. <laughs> Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. And we'll come on down with your finger here around verse 57. We'll not read it just this minute, but we'll be there just a little bit. Now, as I said, we, you know, we have been uh, coming through the Bible here in the book of Nehemiah over the last three months and have been looking at how to build a church. And uh, we talked about all the elements, the outward elements, the inward elements, <clears throat> the nine gates, nine being the number of fruitfulness in the Bible that uh, we need to have as a church. We talked about those things. And in the course of that three months, God's brought a, a number of young couples, young singles into our, our, uh, our church that uh, we've had some people saved. And uh, we just really, uh, I felt the burden just to really take some time on our next series and, and talk about how to build a relationship with the Lord. Now, you know, when you say that, the first thing that comes into your mind is, well, you know, I've, I know what that means. And I'm not talking about just giving you the standard message on how to build a relationship with God. I'm talking about going down to the very bedrock foundation and building principle upon principle how you do that. We live in a day and age where there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of confusion in the world. There's a lot of confusion in Christianity. The confusion comes because over the process of time, things that once were stable things become unstable. The country that we live in, which is a great country, is a long way from God. Yet it started out close to God. Realize that there's only two nations in the history of the world. Two nations in the history of the world that started out with God and the Word of God in their beginnings. One was the nation of Israel and the other one was the United States of America. No other nation in the history of the world starts out with God and the Word of God at their beginning. And both did the same thing with it. And both wound up being into apostasy. And, of course, the reason that it happens is because through the process of time, you lose things. And one of the things you lose is the definition of things the way God looks at it. Now, I've taught you, and some of this is going to be repetitious, I know. Some of you have been around and you've heard it for years, but just bear with me. I've told you before that when it comes to the Bible, you never look at the Bible from a Christian standpoint. You never look at history from a Christian standpoint. You have to look at the Bible. You have to look at history from God's standpoint. You have to see it for what God is doing. God has a plan. And that plan is defined in the Word of God. And there's three plans that God has. God has a plan for the universe. God has a plan for planet Earth. And God has a plan for your life. They're all connected. And the success of those plans, bottom line, rests on understanding God's definition of things. And I could get up here and, you know, I always, I always cringe a little bit when I hear a pastor start out his message. And he, always, he takes a word or a phrase or a verse. And he always goes and starts out by saying, the dictionary defines this word as, and then begins to... Now, I know that 
that that can be okay. But I also know this. There are some definitions in a dictionary that aren't God's definitions. And I, I use the dictionary. I mean, uh, I know you couldn't tell it, but I do. I, I, I use a dictionary. I even have a Webster's 1828, one of the original first edition. Noah Webster was a, a great educator. He was a saved man. He's one of our founding fathers. Most people don't know that. But he wrote, and all of our founding fathers were teachers. And they wrote textbooks. You know why they wrote textbooks? And you don't get this, but the reason why they wrote textbooks, and Noah Webster uh, wrote the books that he wrote, George Washington wrote textbooks. In fact, George Washington's textbook on the history of America was used in a public school system to the 1940s. Noah Webster was a saved man, and he wrote textbooks, as all the founding fathers did, because they realized that the thing that was going to keep America true to God was the definitions of God. So they wrote. So if you would get an 1828 edition of Noah Webster's Dictionary, you would find the word listed there, and then the definition, and then you would also find the Scripture references in the Bible where that word is used and how it is used. You know why? He understood that the Bible is the book of definitions. Now, we've come to the place today in America with all of our liberalism and all the things that go on that we've lost that. And however the world goes... Unfortunately, Christianity goes because it spills over and when Christianity loses its punch, the world loses, falls apart. And as the Bible said, Christ said, we are the salt of the earth and a salt, we preserve things. When the salt loses its savor, when we lose the, the preserving fact of our, as the church is done, then the world just goes to pieces. And we need to start our series today and we're going to be in it for a while. I mean, I'm going to bring you from the beginning to the end. I'm going to even show you in time how to take principles in the Bible as promises and apply them to your life. I've got a whole study thing laid out for you that we're going to go through that. And when we're done, as I said weeks ago, when we're done, the only reason you will not know how to build a working relationship with God, and that's the key, that's the key, that's the key. Catch that word. I'm not just talking about building, showing you how to build a relationship with God. I'm showing you how to build a working relationship with God. One that works. The only reason you won't have one, because you don't want one. I know that, you know, and, and I don't believe that about anybody here. I, I really don't. I, I believe you all want to do what's right. I really do. I mean, me, you may be struggling with things. You may have decisions to make or whatever. But the bottom line is, I believe... Right now, I may not be able to say this next week or three weeks or a year from now, but I believe in everybody's character in our church right now. And I believe that everybody wants to do what's right. And in that, we're very unique. It probably won't last forever. Because John looks like he's getting ready to change right now as we're sitting here. But I don't know. But I know, I know where you're at. And my job, I have one job as a pastor. My job is to make sure that you get everything you need from God. That is why my standard offer it is and always will be that I will sit down an hour a week with anybody. You don't even have to be a member of this church. I will sit down with you an hour a week and help you understand the Bible one-on-one. -on -one. That's my job. And in doing that and in doing this, my primary goal is to help you understand definitions. Definitions are the key. Defining things in your life and my life the way God defines them. I look at the world that we live in, the Christian world. I look at it a lot like, I love Kmart. I could get, a, I could get by in life with no other stores if I just had a big Kmart. Kmart has everything. 
Sam Walton was a saved man. And his concept of Kmart for I was, was a genius as far as I'm concerned. And when you go into Kmart, I mean, you look, I mean, the super ones. I mean, you look down there and there's 120 checkouts both ways. I mean, the Kmart is big as the state of Nebraska. I mean, it's just forever. And you got food. You got clothes. You got everything you need. And, always, and, I, and you walk in there and everybody's just, and, and these scanning things that they just scan across. I mean, the technology is unbelievable. Now you can go to Kmart and you can check your own self out. I, I don't know how, I would never try to do it, but you can do it. I'd be so screwed up, I'd come home and buy something for $1.98 and charge myself $4,453. I'm not doing that. But you can do it. Incredible. And it's all because they have the values of everything already on a little deal. You don't have to ask anybody how much this is. If you do, they just swipe you. And they tell you right off the bat. These guys walk around with little guns that they just... How much is it? $6. Wow. What technology? I always wanted to do this. I always wanted to go in that two days before Christmas, when it was closed, and take all the barcodes and change them. <laughs> Where you bought a pair of socks for 99 cents today, they now cost you $349. The microwave combination slash TV, DVD, or BVD, or whatever the case may be, now cost you 99 cents. And I thought to myself, I'd like to just stand back and just watch the chaos. Here is the two days before Christmas, and I don't know about you, but let me tell you something. You go to Penny's at, at 7 o'clock in the morning, they're not even open. Jones Store, 7 o'clock, they don't open until 9, 9.30. Kmart, I mean Walmart, 6 o'clock, man. It's packed. Everybody's there. They bring buses of people in. And I mean, you know what? They're just, it's and I just stand back in the corner and I would watch the absolute other confusion transpire because somebody went in and changed all the barcodes and by doing that, changed all the values of things. It would be absolutely utter. The greatest technology in the world cannot undo what somebody could do by just changing the barcodes and the value systems. And you know what? That is exactly what has happened in America. While God's people slept in this ultra-tech society where you can send emails online around the world in seconds, while you can do all kinds of things and get a, have your own satellite dish that has your own satellite, or you can call and you can see anything you want, do anything you want, go anywhere you want in minutes, in hours, whatever. While we slept, the devil came in and changed the barcode on everything. And now what was once valuable is not, and what, is not, what was once not valuable is now held up as invaluable. And it's confusing. And it's especially true in Christianity. So I want to begin by talking to you about some definitions of things. I want, to, I want to start with the absolute most important things that you need to understand. Because, let's face it, in Christianity we talk a lot. And we say a lot of things without saying anything. Most pastors today know a lot about the Bible. But most pastors today don't know the Bible. Most Christians know a lot about the Bible because they read a lot of people's books. But they don't read the one book that really teaches them, so consequently, they don't know the Bible. 
So what happens is, is we get a lot of things in Christianity that are spiritual things. We get a lot of things in Christianity that are quote-unquote Christian things. But we get very few things in life from the Bible that are biblical and scriptural. And in our study, and as my job, is nothing more than to make sure what you get is biblical and scriptural, and it is the bottom line, lowest common denominator of the meaning. So when you walk out of here and you put it in your heart, you know you have exactly the definition God wants you to have. And today, I want to talk about the word disciple. I want to talk to you about what it means to be Christ's disciple. Because if you're saved, if you're saved, you are a disciple. And, you know, I'll tell you right off the bat, there is a difference between being a disciple and being an apostle. Now, all the apostles were disciples, but not all the disciples are apostles. There are requirements in the New Testament to be an apostle. Unfortunately, there are no apostles today because none of us can fulfill those requirements. All of them. So there's a difference between disciples and apostles. I want you to understand that first off. You are a disciple, or you can be a disciple, but you can't be an apostle. And you need to know that. And there's some things that about being a disciple that you need to understand. In fact, we need to define what it means. Now, when you come to the Bible, the Bible says in a number of places, you don't have to turn to these, I'm just going to read them to you, but it says in Luke chapter 14, verse 27, it says, Whosoever doth not bear his cross cannot be my disciple. Great verse. It also says in Luke chapter 14, verse 33, it says, Whoso does not forsake all cannot be my disciple. Another great verse. John chapter 8, verse 31 says, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciple indeed. Great verse. John 15, verse 8 says, Hence is my Father glorified, that ye may bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. Now, when, and they're all good verses, and they're all true verses. But, unfortunately, we take from that by reading that, and we never really investigate what it means to be a disciple. And every one of these verses, as true as they are, as good as they are, and as righteous as they are, if you don't get the bottom line definition, you every one of those verses says, by reading it at face value, that you're a disciple by what you do. And ladies and gentlemen, that is simply not true. Because you bear His cross does not make you His disciple. Because you forsake all does not mean that's something you do. Because you continue, a Jehovah Witness continues in his word. But that doesn't make him a disciple. No, no, no. You begin to find out that being a disciple has to do with an attitude. It has to do with, first of all, understanding what it means. And I think this is where we have missed the boat when it comes to telling people about being his disciple. If you're saved this morning and you're part of this church you probably have committed in your heart that I want to be Christ's disciple. Okay? If you would ask the average Christian, that you would find this afternoon, tomorrow, maybe at work, maybe you know somebody, just put them to the test. Say, are you, and you know they're saved, and you say, would you consider yourself Christ's disciple, a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ? 
And if they say yes, ask them, what does it mean to be Christ's disciple? You will never see a more blank stare on your face other than the deer in the middle of the road stop when your headlights hit it. It, they don't know. Why? Because it's been something that they have been taught, something they have been told, but something that has never been defined for them. And they would give you an answer like, well, uh, the Bible says if you continue in my word, then you are my disciple. The Bible says, you know, if you forsake all, I'm your disciple. And they would give you probably one of these verses, if they're smart at all in the Word of God, or if not, they would just say, well, because I'm saved, because I go to church, because my pastor said I was, because my mother said I was. But we have missed the boat. And what I want to do is I want to, I want to talk to you about the fact that uh, uh, being a disciple and discipleship in the lowest common denominator where you get it right down to the basic fundamental definition. Now, we're all saved here this morning. I, I suspect for the most part we are. Maybe there's somebody here, but I, I know most of you and we are, you are. And you know, we don't ever have to worry about losing our salvation. We know that once you're born into God's family, there is no process that you can get unborn out of that family. The question here today is not are you saved or lost, or have you lost it, or do you have it as a Christian? The question is today, are you a good Christian in fellowship with God, or are you out of fellowship with God? That's the really question for a child of God. You can't lose your salvation, but there are some things you can lose as a Christian. And you need to understand this. You can't lose your salvation. But there are some things as a child of God that you can lose. You say, well, what? well, first of all, you can lose your fellowship. And you lose your fellowship by unconfessed sin. I'll tell you the second thing you can lose. You can lose your reward to the judgment seat of Christ. I'll tell you something else you can lose. You can lose your joy as a child of God. I'll tell you something else you can lose. You can lose the assurance of your salvation, even though you're still saved. And I'll tell you something else you can lose. You can lose your discipleship. You ever notice Peter lost his discipleship? Ever see that? I don't know what you, you... If you would turn over to Mark chapter 16 after the Christ is crucified and, and Peter goes through his denial and we don't have time to get into all that this morning. You know what Jesus said? He says, Tell my disciples and Peter. Peter lost... He was saved. He was still, if he'd have died right then, he'd have still went to heaven. But he had lost his discipleship. He had lost the concept of being a disciple. Now, if you, if you want the rest of the story, and again, this would be a great question on some Thursday night Bible study, you go over to John chapter 21, verses 15 through 25, somewhere in there, and you'll see how he got it back. He got it back. But he lost it. My point is this. You're not a, you're not a disciple just because you're saved. Once you are saved, you have the potential to be a disciple, but a disciple is not something that you do. We talk about the word discipleship. We talk about the word disciple. And in studying the concept of being Christ's disciple, I find a key word which comes in connection with the word of being a disciple. And it is the bottom line and the attitude and what 
the definition is that you need to understand. Because the word disciple is kin to the word or a root word from discipline. You are Christ's disciple not because you do anything. You are Christ's disciple because you are disciplined in the things that God wants you to be disciplined in. I remember a number of years ago, I, I, I was listening to two college uh, 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 students who were very high up on the academic scale, and they were, they were doing their uh, thesis for their doctorate, and they were talking back and forth. And I wasn't part of the conversation, but I, I never forget what they said. And it, it, was, a, it, was, a, it was a good point. And he, one of them said, oh, what are you, what's your major? And he said, well, I'm, I'm majoring in philosophy. And he said, oh, he says, what discipline are you studying? And I thought that was a strange thing, but then when I thought about it, I thought, no, that's the right thing. And, I, and since that time, I've heard it many, many times. When you enter into a field in science, they'll, the, the real thing is the discipline of that science. Uh, what, what is your discipline? In other words, what that means is, what are you structuring yourself what are you putting yourself in? What are you structuring yourself in that you're disciplining yourself to learn? And you see, salvation is free. Salvation is free. You get that by just getting on your knees and asking Christ to come into your heart and save you. But discipleship or being a disciple only comes by discipline. Getting yourself to the place where you are disciplined in the teachings of Christ can you become Christ's disciple. It is not something that you do. It is an attitude of your heart that I am Christ's disciple because I am disciplined in what God wants me to do. And doing things for Christ, we think today that that makes us Christ's disciple. Well, it makes you a Christian if you're saved. But the, you, uh, what makes you his disciple is when you discipline yourself in his teaching. Salvation is free. But discipleship comes by obedience. It costs you something. Salvation doesn't cost you a thing. Being a disciple will cost you something. There's a discipline involved. Now, this is the fundamental reason why so many of God's people, when they get saved, never mature into strong Christians. This is where, as far as I am concerned, my own personal opinion, this is where the churches have failed. This is why so many Baptist churches, and I've been associated with them all my life, this is why so many Baptist churches, the pastors say to me on a, on a regular basis, I can't keep the people. We get them saved, but we can't keep them. We get them saved, but we can't keep them. They, they're here for a while, and then they're gone. And a lot of big churches are nothing more than the staff and the pastors and all the people just work doubly hard, three times as hard, coming up with all kinds of ideas to keep the attendance up because it's just a turnover of people. People get saved. I, I remember one time, I remember one time, this has been years ago, there was a great evangelist who was a young guy and, and everybody, and he was, he was coming to Baptist churches and he was, he was just, I mean, he was, the, he was the talk of the town. And the reason he was the talk of the town, because wherever he went, thousands of people would show up to hear him preach. And he would, he would tell the church before he got there, I'll guarantee you that uh, you'll have a thousand people, six hundred people, whatever, and uh, we'll have all kinds of results, and and everything will just be just be great, and, and that's how he hip hop from one church to the other. Now I know the guy 
And I know the guy was very shallow. And he's like most evangelists. You get five or six really good messages, and you can work the circuit. And, 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 and he was in Kansas City one time, and we, I, I had talked with him, and he, had, he was talking about the fact that he had just left Akron, Ohio. And he was there for a week. And in Akron, Ohio, they had a great revival. Akron Baptist Temple had a great revival. And that was a great church. Dallas Billington is, is one of the legends of, of church, modern church history. Dallas Billington, old preacher from Kentucky, came up across the Ohio River. Harold Henniger and John Rollins and some of the rest of them. And boy, I mean, he built a great work. But he'd been long dead by then. His boy had taken it over now. And uh, this evangelist came in and sat down and talked. And he, he told me the fact that over the last week or so, they had 600 people saved. And he was using that because he was trying to book some meetings here. And, and the pastor, well, you can see a pastor's eyes light up. I mean, it's like, it's like a, you know, a, somebody's got a gambling problem finding out that one slot machine is fixed and all you've got to do is kill a quarter in it and you're going to win. Well, your eyes just light right up. And they thought, wow, man, I can, be the, I mean, I can have 600 people saved. So I would listen and talk to him, you know. So I thought to myself, that's great. Praise the Lord. But I had my suspect. So I called Akron Baptist Temple. And I said, you know what? I hear you had a great revival last week with Brother So-and-so. And they said, oh, we really did. I said, is it true you had 600 people saved in the course of that? Now, this is like two weeks after. And they said, yeah, we did. We had 600 people saved. I said, that's great. He says, I just got one more question. I know you're busy. Let me ask you this. How many did you baptize Sunday? Didn't baptize any. Hadn't baptized any of the 600. Now, you know what the problem is there? And I'm not fighting anybody. You know what the problem is? The problem there is a definition. As far as I'm concerned, let me tell you something. I would never go around and say I had 600 people saved if I didn't stick around to see those 600 people really did what was right after they said they got saved. You know why? Because we're living in Kmart where the value systems have all changed. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, being a disciple has nothing to do with being saved. Other than when you get saved, you become God's child, but you're not automatically a disciple. A disciple comes when in your heart you say, I'm going to discipline myself to be what God wants me to be. Now this morning, in our passage right here, I want to talk to you about three areas that you need to be disciplined. Three areas. And this is a great little story. And it says, And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where uh, to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell which are at my home and my house. Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We pray you'll bless our time today as we come into this word and we look at it. Father, help these young men and young ladies, these moms and dads that want to be good, solid moms and dads for their kids, for these folks, Lord, that want to be the right husbands and the right wives. Help us, Father. Help the young ones to grasp these concepts. Help the old ones to renew in their own hearts where they're at and re redefine as, as so many times. Uh, uh, help us, Lord, go back to Bethel to see those things as, that you have for us. And we'll thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, for the sake we ask it. 
Amen. Now, here's three men. And here's three men who want to be Christ's disciple. They want to follow him. And I think in these three men, we see the problem we have of understanding what discipleship is. Now, the first little guy here in verse 57 and 58, he says, And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto them, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Now, the first thing that hits me from that, after 30-some years in the ministry, the first thing that I see that hits me by that is the immaturity of that kind of statement. And I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in a lot of lives of others. Where somebody gets saved, and immediately they want to charge hell with a squirt gun, not even caring if they have any water in it or not. That they are going to do whatever God wants them to do. They're going to stand for Christ, die for Christ, they have the vision of being, you know, Martin Luther nailing his 99 thesis to the door. You know, and he, they get the idea that they're going to stand for God. And it's an, I'm not saying they didn't get saved. I'm not saying they didn't get saved. I believe most cases they did. And I believe their exuberance is, is good. But the bottom line is it's unrealistic. Because you already know that the moment you get saved, and we'll see it even more when we get back to the book of Ezra. I showed you how Nehemiah was how you build a church. Well, the book of Ezra is how you build your body once you get saved. One of them builds a temple, the other one builds a city or the wall. Your body is the temple. We'll talk about that in time. And this little guy, he comes down here and he says, Lord, I'll follow you wherever several thou goest. And of course, that's simply not true. And Christians do it all the time. And Jesus' answer is classic because he strikes right to where the problem is. And he says, uh, you want to follow me? He says, the foxes have holes, the birds have nests. And the Son of Man has nowhere. Now that is the reality of serving God. You see, sometimes when you first get saved, you're so caught up in the emotion. And I remember when I was a young man, you know, and I hear great men preach the Word of God, and I'd see them, and they'd lay things out in the Bible, and I, and I, and I, in my heart, I wanted to do that, and I think every young man and probably young lady does that to some degree, and, and, and I just thought, and I just, you know, I just wanted to do that, and all I saw was how wonderful it would be to be in the ministry. All I saw was getting up in front of people, laying out the Word of God, everybody screaming, yelling, throwing their hats, saying amen, patting you on the back, and going to the next place, and everybody meeting you at the train station or the airport, and just with big signs, hey, preacher's here, we're going to have a great time, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and a whole nine yards. You know what? That isn't reality. Doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. The reality is, the devil waits for you at the train station. The reality is that it just is not realistic to think that you're just going to set the world on fire. And Jesus' answer is classic. He strikes right at the problem. You see, and I'm telling you, the first thing that this young man has to deal with is the first discipline that you and I need to have, and that is lifestyle. Getting too comfortable. Now, it doesn't say it here, but I know how I know when Jesus answered him. I'm saying that this kid probably had a lot going for him. Probably came from a nice house, probably had all kinds of things. Jesus knows that. And that's usually the kind that think that the ministry is just like they live, very comfortable. Because they have no point of reference. You take some kid, drug him off the street, you know, they had to fight and work by the time he was 12 and get everything he wants, you know, to survive. He has a different perspective of life. But this kid doesn't seem to come that way. He comes hip-hopping in, saying, I will follow you whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus says, but I don't have any place to stay. I don't have any place to sleep. I ain't got anything to eat. 
And the first thing that you and I have to discipline ourselves against is getting too comfortable in this life. If you're going to be a disciple, you need to understand this world is not your home. You're here for a purpose and a reason and a mission. God has something that He wants you to accomplish. It is your job through the local church that God has put you in and the men of God around you with the Word of God that teach you and the Holy Spirit of God that lives inside you and the Word of God that God has given you to find out what that is. If you're saved here this morning, you do not exist for the job that you do. Your job that you do exists that you might do what God wants you to do as His disciple. And it's tough to get disciplined in that. It is. Because lifestyle is such a thing. We are geared from the beginning to the end of our lives of things that you're not successful and you you have a lot. Every time you turn on a television, every time you turn on a radio, you have somebody showing you what you don't have but you, what you ought to have. You can't walk through a grocery store and you see it. You can't turn on the TV without seeing it. I mean, women call it window shopping. I call it, let's go to the mall to see what we don't have. We are geared all of our lives to have things. No, I'm not against things. I got a car. I got a suit. I got a house. I, got, I enjoy nice things. But the bottom line is this. You've got to realize that you can't get comfortable in it, and that's tough. I don't know how many of God's people, you know, they, they start out just like this guy. Lord, I want to do what's right. Lord, I want to serve you. Lord, I want to be everything I need to be to you. And then, you know, they go back to work, and they're all ready to go. They got their Bible, and then the boss comes along and gives them a promotion. They get this, they get that, and suddenly uh, it's, it's a battle, and, and they see their friends around them, they're doing this, and the peer pressure of doing this, and everybody being part of this, and you've got to keep up with that standard. I had a guy say one time, and this shows, the, I don't want to use the word stupidity, but it shows the, the immaturity. A guy said, you know what? If I could just win the lottery, my problem would be over. Now that sounds good, and it sounds true, but you know in reality, that isn't true. If you want a million dollars right now today, I promise you, unless you are just a super disciplined guy or gal, I promise you that in a year's time your lifestyle would now have been elevated to a million dollar lifestyle and a million dollars wouldn't be enough just like your paycheck now isn't enough. You know why? Because you buy more things, you get more things, you want more things, you see more things, you go more places, you get with people who have more money than you do. It's always the deal. You need to understand that. There, will never be, there is no pleasing your flesh. There will never be a time when you say, this flesh will say, I've had enough. Never. Never. There will never be a time when you say, I have enough money. Why, why does a guy who has, who has, and I think guys like Bill Gates and guys like, why do, why do these guys who have a hundred million dollars want more money? Well, see, right now, we all make basically nothing compared to them. <laughs> and you have a car, maybe two cars. Jimmy, he's so bad off, he has to drive down the street looking for deals to buy a car. He, you know, we have cars, we have a house, we have this, we have that. And, and you know, and, and, and we survive. And we get our paycheck in, and, and we, we look at each other, and we say, well, this is my paycheck, this is your paycheck. We, can, we all live about the same, and we're all on a level. But... You know, when you buy a $800 car or a $2,000 car or a $3,000 car, but you see that, that you're in your little thing there. Now, suddenly you get $10 million. Now you buy 
a $100,000 car. You buy a $2 million boat. We bought our home. It was like 75. Our first home was like $26,000 when we bought our first home years ago. Their home is $4.3 million. You see what I'm saying? Well, after a while, you start have to support that lifestyle. So $100 million for him. I mean, I'm sitting down here saying, oh, man, I just wish I had half of what Bill Gates has got. And Bill Gates is walking around saying, oh, I just wish I had half of what them Saudi Arabian guys have that's got all that oil. That's the way it is. It just keeps going. And so someplace in the process, you know what you have to do? You have to become, comes the ugly word, satisfied. Now, how you do that? You have to discipline yourself. Paul said, I have learned. I love that part because it doesn't come naturally. I have learned whatever state I'm in therewith to be content. But you know how you get there? You don't get there by getting saved and saying, I'm going to follow you, God, wherever you go. You get there by disciplining yourself. Disciplining yourself. You have to get there by disciplining yourself to the point where you realize that God shall supply all of your need. And I'm telling you, this kid, when he come to Christ, he said, I want to be your disciple. I want to follow you wherever you go. But Luke chapter 14, verse 28 says, a great principle Whoever builds a house without sitting down and counting the cost. It costs you something. Salvation is free. But it will cost you something to be his disciple. It will cost you something to be his disciple. And this first guy down here, I'm telling you, the first thing that you and I have to understand about discipline which is the key to being Christ's disciple, that we have to be disciplined, and we have to be disciplined in the aspect of getting too comfortable in this world. You're here this morning to learn the Bible. Our times together one-on-one is to learn the Bible. To what end? That you may fulfill whatever God has for you to do. Our Thursday night Bible studies, any question you want to ask about the Bible, why do we do it that way? Because I want to give everybody the most fairest shot I can to learn anything you want to learn about the Bible. I don't want to come to you and say, I decided this is what you need. I want you to say to me, Bob, this is what I need. Give it to me. How do I know what you need? I mean, God, I know we all need this, and I know we've got to yell. This is a gimme here. But on a Bible study, talking about the Bible, you have things in your heart, in your life, your issues that you're dealing with that are pertinent and relevant to you and your family and your kids. That's where I need to be. I mean, salvation is free, folks, but discipleship costs you something. It costs you discipline. And the first thing you have to do is discipline your lifestyle. That doesn't mean you don't go to ball games, you don't have fun, you don't do this, you don't laugh, you don't... I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you look at the world you live in and you understand what God has called you to do and then within that framework you make it work that God gets the glory out of it and not somebody else. That's all. Don't get your roots down too deep. I look when Abraham left down there, God said, forsake all, I got a great thing from you. You know what? The friend of God, the greatest probably man in the Old Testament had a relationship with God, couldn't believe God, could took a lot with him. And what problem did that cause? And we are, for, you know why he couldn't leave Lot? Because he wasn't disciplined. He wasn't disciplined. All right, the second discipline. Verse 59. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said, sorry, 
No funerals. Now, I understand the doctrinal part of this, but there's a practical side. You ever been to a funeral? Funerals are, are worth... I mean, everybody who hates everybody in life suddenly becomes friends at the funeral. I mean, you got uncles that won't talk, brothers and sisters that are fighting, haven't talked for years, and Aunt Edna dies, and everybody shows up, and now they're nice. So after the funeral, then they're all mad again. I never understood that. And Christ says, Christ says, no funerals. He says, no funeral. He says, let the, what a thing to say, let the dead bury their dead. Now, I know he didn't mean that. I've told you before, whenever you come to the place in the Bible where Christ says something that's out of character for him, he's showing you a great truth. I mean, this is the Christ that wept when Lazarus died. This is the Christ that, that saw the, the, the widow bringing her son down there and walked over to the casket and said, young man, arise, and he got up. Now today, this guy says, well, I want to follow you, but my father's dead, and I need to go bury him. And Jesus said, hey, let the dead bury the dead. You know what he's saying? Really? How can the dead bury the dead? He's saying, well, rot, man. Come on. Now, I know he didn't mean that. He's trying to get a point across. Christ shows, Christ's answer really shows that uh, discipleship is an attitude. Now, I promise you, if the kid would have said, okay, Lord, you're right, forget him, let's go. Christ would have said, okay, okay, you got the point, now go bury your father. He's not so cold and hardened, that's what he's saying. I mean, when the Bible says in Luke chapter 14, it says, if any man come unto me and hate not his father and his mother and his wife and his wife and his children and his brother and his sister, and, and then he says, yea, just in case you're antisocial, even your own life, he ain't meaning that you should hate your mother. On the other side, he says, honor your father and your mother. On the other side, he says, any man that hates anybody is a murderer. So he's not contradicting himself. He's trying to show you something. Because the second thing you need to discipline yourself in, and it always shows up with family, is your emotions. Your emotions. Our, we're frail in our emotions. I, I, let me tell you something. You give me the biggest 500-pound linebacker in the world and break his emotions, and he's, he's, he's worthless. You know why? Because the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28, that he without rule of his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Your emotions are your key to everything. And let's face it, we are emotional people. You know why we're emotional? Because God gave us emotions. Nothing wrong with your emotions. You know what's wrong? We got the wrong definition of what we are emotional about. That's what's wrong. We love, we, we, we love inanimate objects today. I hear it all the time. And I know it's a phrase, and my kids hate when I say this, but it's so true. We love it. I love that dress. I love that car. I love this house. I love this rock in my yard. I love this. Listen to me. I love a house. I love a car. I love a boat. I love... The rock in the backyard? I'm telling you, wrong definitions. We spend so much time, and I know you say, well, it's an expression. Hey, don't give me that. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We've got the wrong definitions. You know how I know that? Because anytime the body of Christ gets to the place where you start loving inanimate things, 
You love your car? Do you love all Christians? No. You love your house? Yes. Do you, do you love your, your, your mother or your dad or who you're having problems with? No. You love that dress? Oh, I love that dress. How many times have I heard that? Oh, I just love that on you. What does that mean? I love that on you. I never figured it out. Now, I love you. I don't love that on you. I love 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 you. But I'm not going to go out and look at that truck and say, Oh, I love you, truck. You love me, John. You love me. 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 I know you do. You're married to me. You have to. <laughs> My truck never smiled and shook his head back. He didn't even honk the horn. I have to, I have to hit the button to get the lights to flash. You know why? It's inanimate. Can't love. How much time do we talk, waste time talking about loving things that can't love back? You know what? We got the wrong definitions. Now, I'm not fighting you. And next time I hear you say, well, I love this house or I love this tree. And I know, I know now everybody's not going to talk to me anymore. And they're going to, you know, they're going to be careful what they say, you know. And they're going to say, oh, yeah, this is, oh, no. House, I don't care about that house. Preacher, I'm going to go burn it down when we're done here today. You know, brand new car, watch this. I don't care about it. Let's don't go to the extreme. I understand. You know what it takes to get out of that mindset? Because it's a mindset. You know what it takes? Here comes the word. Discipline. Discipline. I, I, don't, I don't have any time to love something that can't love me back. That's not human. I mean, there's a lot of people that don't love me back. But I can still love them. But a car? I don't think so. Our emotions. I, 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 said, I, I, I sat there, I watched the other night, and this is the confession now, this is, this, I'm going to confess to you. I watched a movie the other night, it was on television, it's an old movie, and I really like it, it was Brian's song, about Brian Piccolo. And I, I sat down there, and, and you know, when he, I, I, it was about, you know, everybody, you know, everybody was gone, Barbie's gone to bed, you know, the dogs, I don't even want the dogs to see me. And I sat there, and I bawled like a baby. I watched, I watched the movie Alvin York. By, you know, by the way, you know, Wednesday was the anniversary of Alvin York when he did the Argonne Front. That's side point. And I, and, I, and, that, and I know it's a movie, but when he sits down there and his old grandmother who prayed for him, and I know the story of Alvin York. I mean, it's more than a movie, but I mean, it, it's a moving thing. And he sits down there and she, she's talking to him, and he's big old dumb boy, you know, who found God and loves God, you know, and, he, and I just bawl like a baby. And I think and after I'm done, I, I get kicked myself. I'm thinking about, you know what? What is wrong with me? I mean, what is wrong with me? I mean, this is a movie. There are people dying without Christ who are lost, who I should be on my knees. What is wrong? I'll tell you what's wrong. Undisciplined. We get so caught. It's so easy to do. It's so easy, man. I mean, and I'm not saying you can't we I'm not saying you got to go there to a, a movie, you know, and just sit there and say, or watch TV, you know, and just go out there and say, well, you know what, that don't bother me. I'll kill it. I hope you die. I hope you, I mean, no. It's okay to have emotion. But don't let it be all overriding in everything that you do. Understand that save your emotion for the one who loved you more than anything else in this world. 
And I'm telling you, just like this young guy, he said, my father just died, i got to go back or, uh, and bury him. And he said, let the dead bury the dead, because he knows that especially in families or relationships, emotion can play a big factor. And if you ain't got a discipline, you'll go home today, get saved, go home today, be all excited about the God and, and the Lord, and maybe your mom and dad won't, maybe your boyfriend won't, maybe your girlfriend won't, maybe your friends won't, and suddenly, you know what, you got a problem. See, the goal, here's the goal. The goal for your life and my life is to get to the place in our relationship with God where there is nothing on this planet. That's what he's saying. No mother, no father, no wife, no husband, no brother, no sister, no nothing, no circumstance, no situation. Your job and my job is to discipline ourselves to get to the point, not that I don't have emotions, not that I don't have feelings, not that I don't have compassion, not that I don't have all the things, but I have them disciplined that nothing or nobody in this world can get me off the track of what God wants me to do with my life. That's all. That, my friend, is Christ's disciple. A man who is, a woman who is disciplined. So the first little guy comes up and he says, he says, hey, he says, I'll, I'll follow, I'll follow you wherever you goest. Lifestyle. Got to discipline yourself. The second little guy comes up and it's your emotions. We have to keep control. It, 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 he says, compared to your love for me and your devotion to me, it ought to be hate for everything else in this world. Even though he's not saying hate your mother and your father. Then the last thing he says, verse 61 and 62. Another said, Lord, I'll, I'll follow, uh, I'll, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at my home and my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Three little things. Three little things. No homes, no funeral, no goodbyes. The comforts of life, the emotions of life, and the past of life. You have to discipline yourself against the past. I don't know how many of God's people have just never went forward because they could not stop looking back. Lot's wife couldn't get to where God wanted to go because she just kept looking back. Turned into a pillar of salt. I was teaching a Christian school one time and I was telling them a story. about. I had to give a little Bible thing. They're like in 8th, 6th, 7th grade. And I thought... You know, pick something that is really nice and under, easy to understand. So I said, I'll do Lot, Lot's wife. So I said, Lot's wife was called out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as she walked, she looked back and she turned into a pillar of salt. Little kid in the second row raised his hand. Cute kid. I said, yes. I thought he was going to say, that really touched me. And, or I thought he was going to say, well, that was really good. Or that really, you know what he said? He said, he said that ain't nothing. And my wife, my mom was going to the grocery store. She looked back and turned into a telephone pole. <laughs> I said, I like your story better than I like mine. I said, why don't you come up and teach the class? She could not get, that is a true story, by the way. She could not get her past. Lot was the same way. He got out, but you know what? He never did anything meaningful for God because the problem wasn't getting Lot out of Sodom. The problem was getting Sodom out of Lot. 
And you've got to realize that when you get saved, behold, all things are passed away, all things become new. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. And that's what Jesus said. He says, he says no, and everybody likes to use this for a verse you can prove to lose your salvation. You know, it ain't talking about that. It says, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. Because if you keep looking back, you'll never look forward. And you have to discipline yourself against your past. Now, some of you more than others. Hey, we all go through things in life before or after we're saved. We all go through things in life that are rough. You can't let those things defeat you. I don't care what it is. God doesn't care where you've been or what you've done or what you've been involved in as long as right now you are where you want to be, God wants you to be, and doing what God wants you to be. Philippians chapter 3 verse 12 says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press. Press, work out. Discipline, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. It's not easy. You have to forget it. One of the greatest concepts that will it'll ever hit you as a Christian is the ability that God has not only to forgive, but forget. Now, that's unbelievable. I know all kinds of Christians. I know some Christians right now who just are fretting and just struggling with things that they've done in their past and, they, and they, they don't understand the concept. And I promise you, if the rapture came right now and they had to stand before Christ, they would be up there him hawing around and they start saying, well, Lord, I, I, you know, years ago before I was saved, you know, I, I, I just need to tell you this. Get, I, I did this and I did that and I did that. And the Lord just kind of looked at them and he just watched them and, and listened to them, you know, as he does. And they'd go on, you know, and then, you know, right before I got saved, oh, I did this and they did that. And, you know, I, I, it really bothered me all my life. Even after I got saved, I just really couldn't serve you because of what I did back here. And, oh, I might as well tell you this too, Lord. You know, I, I did this before I was saved. And they'll go on and on and on and on. And they'll be done. And they'll look at the Lord and they'll say, okay, I feel better. And the Lord will look down and say, did you do that? You're telling me that you have you did all that? The guy said, yeah, I'm really sorry, Lord. And the Lord just say, hmm, I'd forgotten that. Praise the Lord. I told you last week, God had a bottle for your tears, and a book for your thoughts, and a bag, a bag, a bag for your transgressions. He puts them in a bag, dumps them in a deeper sea, and never thinks about them again. You say, boy, I wish I could be like that. You ought to be. Don't give me this. A child of God ought to get so in tune with God that not only can you forgive, you can forget. Somebody does something bad to you, can you forget it? Or do you just walk around every time you see a car that's like their car, or you see a, you know, this or that, or you see them at the grocery store or the mall, you know, the rest of your day is just reliving the whole thing, you know, oh, just what they did to me and all this stuff. You know what? Hey, let me tell you something. You know what it takes to get to that point where you can not only forgive, but forget and don't? You say, well, Bob, human beings just don't have the ability to forget. Yes, you do. In Christ Jesus, you do. You say, you mean to be out of my mind? No, it just won't make any big deal anymore. And when somebody comes up to you and says, well, how do you feel about what they did to you? You just say, you know what? Here's what I think. 
Somebody will say, well, boy, you know, did that so-and-so really talk bad about you? What do you think about that? Or are you, how do you, what are you, what are you going to do about that? You know, and then here's my standard answer. Somebody comes to me and says, well, you know what they said about you? You know what they, you know, what, what are you going to, what do you think about that? Now, here's what I think. Here's, here's my opinion on it. You know what? And this is deep, so you want to get this. You don't have to write them. Just listen to it until it sinks in, then write it down, and you want to buy the tape for this one thing alone. Here's what I answer them. I say, you know what? If you want to get your limit of squirrels, you've got to get in the woods before the sun gets up. Because them critters will see you coming in the woods once the sun gets up, and you won't get your limit of squirrels. Say, what has that got to do with what they just said about you? Nothing. But that's what I think about it. Nothing. I don't care. I'm focused on the real things of life. Loving my shotgun. Loving my car. Loving my truck. Well, I mean, I, it, it doesn't make any difference. You and I can come to the point where we discipline ourselves as Christ's disciple that you can have discipline in your lifestyle, discipline in your emotions, and discipline in your past that you can forgive yourself. Not only can some of God's people not forgive others, they can't forgive themselves. Disciple. And this is where we want to get. Because I'm telling you, discipline is not only the key to the Christian life, discipline is the key in everything in life. You know why the Chiefs are 5-0? and Because they're disciplined. They got it down where everybody knows what they're doing. They just, I mean, uh, they, they're disciplined. It, discipline overcomes fear. They call it the red zone. They get down there, they got to make a touchdown. You know what, I'd be, I'd be so nervous as a quarterback, I wouldn't know what to do. I, I mean, I'd be, you know what, they just get down like they just got the ball for the first time and they're running in. You know why? They're disciplined. Now, now, let me just say this, since I said that. You know how they got disciplined? You know how they, you know how they got disciplined? They didn't get disciplined by, by going out and, and, just, and just passing passes all the time. And just, you know how they get disciplined? They get disciplined the same way they do everything in life. You just discipline yourself in the basics first. The fundamentals of football. What are the fundamentals? How to tackle, how to catch, how to whatever. I don't know. I don't know anything about football. I don't know anything about baseball. I still wonder why all the umpires are named Al. I don't know. I got it on the hat, Al. I guess you got to be named Al to be an umpire. I don't know. You're not Al. You're an umpire. I don't know anything about it. I just know that I know this much about it. It comes down to the basics in everything. Over the speedway over there, where I never get to go. Them guys run around there 200 plus miles an hour. Everybody says, "Ah, oh, I could do that." Yeah, try it. There's more than just every. 400 feet, turn the wheel. More to it. You know how you learn to be a good driver? Like you'd be anything else. Basics. 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 I forget who it was. John probably knows. A long time ago, they were asking this guy how he, how, how, how he did a great baseball team, and his answer was classic. Everybody thought it was stupid. And, but I, I, when I heard it, well, I read it. I didn't hear it because I was too young. But when I, when I read it later, I knew exactly. They asking him, well, what about your, how are you going to win the World Series? How are you going to do this? How are you going to do that? And it was a baseball game. And he just suddenly got up and he took a baseball and he said, gentlemen, this is a baseball. And he sat down. Everybody said, well, that was just, no, no, that was a great answer. You know what he's saying? How are we going to win it? The basics. This is a baseball. How are we going to make you a disciple of Christ? Simple. This is a Bible. The basics. 
basics number one, what does it mean to be his disciple? The greatest aspect in your life and the fundamental thing that has to be there is self-discipline. You have to discipline yourself in your comforts of life, discipline yourself in your emotions. I'm not saying you can't have nice things, shouldn't have nice things, shouldn't want nice things. Don't want them more than what Christ wants you to do. That discipline in your past. That's where it has to start. And we will take that and we will build upon that every week, showing you piece by piece by starting divining it. Now next week, as far as I know, and if God may change it, I'm going to go through the basics of the second most important thing you need to have, and that is a balance in your life. I'm going to show you, define what a balance is. How do you balance? Object lesson for the week. When your wife isn't around, go to the refrigerator, get three apples, and see what you can do. You'll be a disaster. Balance is just that hard. I watched a guy one time, he was behind his back. around. You know how he got to that point? He got to that point through practice of the basics. Balance is the same way. And if, if we don't do it next week, if God shows me something else, but that's where we're, I think we're headed. Because I got a number of things that I wanted to find that you have to have in concrete. That then we begin to build upon that, and I'm going to show you what the next layer is. And then we're going to build it layer by layer by layer by layer. That when you're done, you're going to have everything at your fingertips to have the relationship that God wants you to have. Today, now you understand what it means to be his disciple. It means to be disciplined. It's not something you do. It's something you are. You do what you do because you are what you are. And if you don't have the discipline, you're just an undisciplined Christian doing a lot of Christian things. If you do have the discipline, then you are a disciplined Christian doing the biblical things. And that's where it's at. Father.